Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. There's going to be two readings today. The first is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. That's on page 687 of the Church Bibles. This is Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The second reading is from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. That's page 1,105 in the Church Bibles. Acts chapter 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He'll bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby, for reading. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all. 
Um, if we haven't met before, my name's Will. I'm on the staff team here as part of the Children's Youth and Families team. Um, we're going to be focusing on that second passage that was read out, so that's the one to keep in sight uh, if you've got a Bible on you. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. You might be familiar with those lyrics from John Lennon's very famous song, Imagine. In the song, he asks us to picture a world of peace and harmony between all the peoples of the earth. And the song was voted as the third greatest song of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. The remastered version has over half a billion streams on Spotify, and it's found popularity across countries worldwide. But what has made this simple song so treasured by so many people? Well, I think it's because there's a common longing for a world where people are joined together in joy and peace. We hate seeing war and division when we hear about it in the news, and we know in our own lives the pain of fractured relationships. We desperately want to be part of a community where we feel like we belong and where the people in that community are at peace with one another. But this does raise a question for us. If this is what people want, why isn't the world this way? And given the way that there is so much war and division in the history of humanity, is there any reason to hope that there really could be peace between people? Can anyone put the world right? Can anyone put your world right? And when it comes to religion, maybe Lenin is right in saying that we need to get rid of it in order for there to be a world of peace. Isn't Christianity responsible for so much division and pain? Our passage this evening has so much to say about all of these questions and more, so let's have a look. Firstly, half the story is human pride. So the apostles and the believers throughout Judea had heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. This was big news and it had traveled fast. And then if you look at verses two and three, we read that when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. A certain group described here as the circumcised believers are unimpressed with Peter and his actions. For them, they felt it was totally wrong for Peter to mix with these Gentiles, these uncircumcised men, and to share fellowship with them as if they were, as if they were members of God's saved community. To us, it's hard to see what these people were so unimpressed with. We have thousands of years of church history with non-Jewish people being fully included in the church. But for these people, this would have been the first time of coming face to face with the idea that non-Jewish people, uncircumcised people, could be included in the people of God. For thousands of years before that, God had raised up a nation and made it clear that as his people, they were to be holy, to be set apart. He gave Abraham the marker of circumcision to show their distinctiveness 
and told him that every one of his male descendants was also to be circumcised. And for thousands of years, the Israelites were called to be distinctive, to worship one God and to show to all the nations around them how great he was. This hadn't gone well, though, and the Israelites spent a period of 70 years kicked out of the land. And having come back into the land after those 70 years and realizing that it was their sin that had led to them losing their place in that land, some of the Jews felt this strong need to clamp down on the absolute purity of the people of God. They couldn't be tainted by the nations around them, some of them felt. And so it was that in a desperate desire to maintain the purity of God's people, the group of circumcised believers want to know from Peter How could you compromise the purity of God's people by going into a Gentile's house and eating with them? Perhaps this is just what religion does to people. It sets people up to cling obsessively to a certain viewpoint so that anyone who doesn't live up to that standard looks down on the others and they're considered outcasts. I honestly haven't watched the film Mean Girls, but I'm aware of a clip where one of the girls is excluded from the lunch table because she's wearing sweatpants on a Monday, which goes against the rules of the group. It's a silly but a real picture of the kind of arrogance that plays itself out in human history as people treat those who fail to conform to their standards with complete cold-heartedness. The issue of looking down on others doesn't originate with God, The issue stems from human pride. The group of circumcised believers, in this case, had failed to recognize two things. Firstly, they'd failed to reflect rightly on their Jewish teaching. Yes, God had set apart the Jewish people to be a holy nation, but from beginning to end, the nation of Israel was meant to be a blessing to the other nations around them. When God called Abraham to himself, he did say to him, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. But he also said, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The nation of Israel wasn't there to push other nations away. They were meant to be a magnetic force drawing people in to worship God, to receive his blessing. Secondly, the circumcision group had failed to appreciate the effects of the world-changing life, death and resurrection of Jesus. The arrival into the world of Jesus Christ was interpreted rightly by Simeon in Luke's gospel, Luke's first volume that precedes Acts. There in chapter two, Simeon had held the baby Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. But what the circumcised believers had failed to see here, they would soon have their eyes open to. Who or what do you look to in hope that the world will become a better place? Lenin's utopia of a world without cultural markers like religion or nationality may seem like a world of peace and humility, but what if you don't conform to John Lennon's standards? If your cultural heritage, your your religion, or your nationality are at the core of who you are, can you be invited in to join the Brotherhood of Man? 
if we hope that humans can bring about world, a world of peace, we need to consider again whether the story of human history and human pride might just leave that hope unfulfilled forever. Only a story that can retain the diversity of its people whilst bringing unity can fill those hopes. So secondly, half the story is human hypocrisy. We see in verses 4 to 10 that even Peter, the great apostle, is himself hypocritical and he's slow to see God's purposes. For those of you who were here last Sunday evening, you'll have noticed that there are a lot of similarities between the passage that Matt preached on last week and the passage that we've had read tonight. Here's a thought on how we understand what's going on here. In chapter 10, it's as though we've been watching a World Cup final and the result is dramatic and it's going to be hitting the front pages of the newspapers. And then in our passage tonight, it's as though we're being invited in on the post-match interview with Peter to get his perspective on what's just happened. And you'll be pleased to know that uh, unlike your typical footballer, this is an interview full of profound insights. In verse 4, we see that Peter is going to respond to the criticism of the circumcised believers by telling them the whole story. He begins by recalling that strange vision that he'd seen. It was a sheet containing a range of animals. Some of them would have been considered clean under Old Testament standards. Some of them would have been considered unclean. Nonetheless, as we look at verse 7, we see that Peter is told to get up, kill, and eat. Peter's response is is more than just a cultural dislike for certain foods, like us being asked to eat ants or larvae. For Peter, it's a question of potentially having his status before God compromised. And his reply is one of horror. Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. So as Peter recalls his story, he's not afraid to bear all and to admit that he was acting hypocritically and had a major blind spot. He doesn't miss out the detail that the Lord's call to get up, kill and eat, and then his response of surely not was a call and refrain that repeated itself three times. And perhaps as Peter reflected on this, he might have thought back to the other time he'd been given three chances to acknowledge that he was a follower of Jesus but instead denied knowing him, just as Jesus would go to the cross for him. What's more, Peter had emphatically said, nothing impure or unclean had ever entered his mouth, but his cleanliness wasn't even that squeaky at that point. As he stayed with Simon the Tanner in Joppa, it was likely that Simon and his house would have been considered unclean by Old Testament standards because of the animal skins that would have been required for that line of work. So Peter's response is a bit like any adolescent boy who claims to have had a shower, but they've completely missed the mud that's all over their face. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus had said in clear terms to his disciples, don't you see that nothing that enters a person can defile them? What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Why is it that Peter had failed to listen to this? Why is it that further down the line in the New Testament story, he would fail again 
to welcome Gentiles into the church. Well, it's a hard lesson for humanity to learn that we cannot think of ourselves as being good simply because we do certain good behaviors. We can't think of ourselves as being better than others because of those things. Avoiding unclean foods, staying out of crime, never swearing, getting baptized, receiving communion. None of these things give us a platform with which to then look down on other people. Instead, when we hear Jesus' words and reflect clearly on our, own, on our own hearts and God's holiness, we find that no one has even a leg to stand on to look down on others. If you are someone who's put your faith in Jesus, there is a new attitude to others to cultivate. Gone are the days for you and me to think that we are special because we adhere to certain standards or cultural norms. And gone are the days when you and me can look down on others. The Christian who shares their faith with people at work but then looks down on other Christians in their congregation is like a clanging cymbal. The Christian who has plumbed the depths of theology but has no heart to love the others around them is not living as they should. A Christian may give all they possess to the poor and give over their body to hardship so that they can boast, but if they don't have love, they've gained nothing. Hundreds of years before Peter, another Jewish man had stood in the city of Joppa on the west coast of Israel and wished that God would not send him to a group of Gentiles. Much like Peter, Jonah knew how to play the hypocrites. And Jonah needed a whale-sized intervention from God to turn him around. And as Peter continues his speech, he shows how God had intervened in his life to turn him around. So here, the first part of the whole story comes into view. Divine salvation. Peter doesn't want to attribute any goodness on his part to what happens next. He is clear that the events around him were orchestrated by God. In verse 11, he recalls how after his vision, right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. Some dogs are trained to wait um, for their food, and uh, when the owner then steps back from the food, some dogs will just go straight ahead, get the food. Other dogs might sort of wait for a bit longer and look gingerly at their owner as if to say, is it really okay for me to go and have this food? They need some encouragement. And it's a bit like that with Peter. He needs divine encouragement. And he gets a double dose of divine encouragement as the Spirit tells him to have no hesitation. And then he finds, verse 13 and 14, that not coincidentally, Cornelius had been told to send for him, assured by an angel that Peter would bring a message through which he and all of his household could be saved. So as Peter explains to the circumcised believers why he went into the house of these uncircumcised men and ate with them, the whole story he tells puts the events together in a way that shows the hand of God in bringing together this group of Jews and Gentiles. Peter has referred to the Holy Spirit in verse 12, and he has referred to three more times in the rest of the passage. Why this focus on the Holy Spirit? Well, we learn from chapter 10, verse 2, that Cornelius and his family were devout and God-fearing people. 
They gave generously to those in need. They prayed to God regularly, according to Luke. Yet from our passage today, we learn that it isn't outward acts of good behavior that bring people to a right standing before God or peace between people. Cornelius and his family need to hear a message and they need to receive the Holy Spirit just as they do in verse 15. This isn't more religious red tape as if hearing the gospel message and having the Holy Spirit are just means to certain people being able to boast of their holiness and look down on the heathens around them. The message that Cornelius and his family hear is that they are actually far more unclean than they had ever realized. Such was their standing before God because all people fall short of his glory that no amount of devotion or praying or giving could make atonement for their sin that runs through every human heart. The message also told them that they were far more loved than they could ever have dreamed. Such was God's love for them that he gave his only son so that they shouldn't die but have eternal life with him. And the Holy Spirit that they received doesn't allow for boasting in good works. Rather, he reminds us through Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 8 that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In a world where humans are left to bring about world peace, world history would tell us that often one or more groups will set themselves up as a beacon of hope and a, or a standard of righteousness. Which group would or could you put your trust in? Would they still welcome you if you failed to conform to their standards? Would they die for you if you failed to conform to their standards? As Paul says in Romans, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us so fourthly and finally the whole story divine reconciliation that first reading that we had from Isaiah chapter 2 pictured a mountain to which all peoples would stream together it's one of many pictures in Isaiah of people from all nations gathering together in peace with instruments of productivity and prosperity which have been melted down from weapons. And at the center of each picture is God, ready to receive and to bless any who come to him. The Bible would tell us that getting rid of faith in God is not the way towards reconciliation amongst people but rather that faith in God is the only way. Peter has seen something of this by the time he recalls the whole story, and verse 17 is a line of beautiful humility. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Across 4,000 years, since the time of Abraham, through to Jonah, through to Peter, through to the present day, people have believed 
there have been people that have believed that God will draw together the broken pieces of humanity and unite them. But Peter has only just realized that this plan wasn't a 4,000-year-old plan. It was a timeless plan. And timeless plans cannot be stopped. In Ephesians, Paul writes of God's eternal plan to bring unity in all things, to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Um, this is chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, which just about fit on the screen. <laughs> um, it says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Who can help but praise God for the way he humbles proud humanity so that they can stop battering one another and come to the one who was battered for them? Even the circumcised believers can't help themselves. In verse 18, it says, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. When the circumcised believers heard firsthand from Peter that God had made no distinction between them and the Gentiles and given them the spirit too, they were led to praise. If you were to look at all the people who God has given his spirit to, would it incline you more to praise God or question God? God has fully given his spirit to people from America and people from China who have put their faith in Jesus. God has fully given his spirit to men and women of all classes and races who have put their faith in Jesus. God has fully given his spirit to people who have committed the most atrocious crimes but have turned to Jesus and put their faith in him. Does that move you to praise God or to question him? God's kingdom is not for those who claim to be blemish-free and acceptable in every way. God's kingdom is for anyone from any culture who knows they've done wrong and want new life. Do we have to imagine a world where the old barriers of nations and cultural distinctions no longer lead to strife and hatred? No. That world has already been brought in by the arrival of Jesus Christ, and it is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit who is poured out on all who believe in him. At present, that world is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's surrounded by darkness now, and even within itself, it contains cells that need to be changed and are in the process of being changed. Yet it contains uncontainable potential to become a large garden plant to which all kinds of birds from all over will come and perch in its branches. Praise God. Let me offer a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, 
Thank you for sending him into the world as a peace offering. Father, we do not deserve um, to be uh, drawn into your love, but such is your great love for us, um, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And thank you for what that means for our relationships with one another across the world. Thank you that we can look forward to a day of being joined together in perfect unity, even with all the diversity that the people of God contain. Amen.